And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, Jamie and I discuss the GOP's embrace of QAnon followers following Joe Biden's inauguration, how YouTube's algorithm change in 2014 to prioritize experts helped manufacture an alternative reality of pseudo-experts, and the commodification of extremism and nostalgia. If you invent evidence and use that evidence as gospel, You've detached yourself from any structural way of identifying how we've established and understood science and fact for the last 500 years. Before we start, make sure to subscribe to Digital Void on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. Did you see the Hawaii GOP tweet that says, we should make it abundantly clear The people who subscribed to the Q fiction were largely motivated by a sincere and deep love for America. Patriotism and love of country should never be ridiculed. (laughs) Yes, I did, because my feed, my Twitter feed, is basically made up of far-right researchers and academics who study internet culture and misinformation and disinformation. So, of course, almost everyone had a take on that. And I think it's interesting because these official blue check GOP accounts uh, in several states have started deciding to move further right. And the further right they go, the more they are embracing this uh, disaffected or disenfranchised, re-disenfranchised group of Q adherents. And I think what happened is, is I, I, I think there's a strategy in this. And I think there's an interesting thing to keep an eye on for the next four years, I'd say, maybe, well, maybe for the rest of our lives. And I think that this is a a distinct big tent strategy by the GOP, because there's really two things. There's a couple things to look at. And I I just need to, I think we need to, I need to plug Jared Holt's shitpost uh, podcast too, to kind of fill in the blanks here. His most recent episode dealt with the insurrection and, and, and sort of the thought processes that went behind it and how we got to this point and why so many of the people that were seditionists were QAnon people, like actual Q people. So where do the Q people fit within the Republican Party, the GOP, the conservatives? I mean, we're talking about basically like as in with the left and the right, we're talking about like these downstream sects of different ideologies within the larger conservative movement. And Q itself is the movement that created its fiction and believed in a fiction that eventually became an umbrella conspiracy theory that adopted a lot of really, really bad things, uh, most specifically anti-Semitism, anti-democracy, and the overarching umbrella thought of the left or Democrats being a cabal of child eaters. It's it's really a dangerous thought process, but beneath it all, they came from a conservative or Republican ideology. So I think when we see like blue check GOP accounts start to adopt Q or move to Gab, what we're looking at is a, a floundering, a very nervous floundering. Where does Q energy spill over into? 
Is it a more radical internet in general, or is it a more federated approach to meet people where they're at? Yeah, I think the latter. Uh, meet meet them where they're at, I think, is the most important thing here. I think you could see this in a few things, things that happen in our mainstream news. So right after Trump was impeached for the second time, McConnell made it almost cl- very clear that he was interested in convicting Trump. And I think that was based most specifically on the immediate delivery of the papers directly to the Senate, although they didn't, they have yet to make it to the Senate at this point. But I think that thought process was very clear that there is a structural Republican Party that knows they have more numbers than the subsects of Q, patriots, nationalists, proud boys, paramilitary groups, and so forth. And what they realize is that if the larger Republican Party is the one that will succeed in the democracy that we have built, then they have to keep that structure going because otherwise a fracturing of the party will lead to their demise over the course of time and potentially create new parties, which to be honest is good to have more parties. But when it comes to a Republican Party, we shouldn't have like nine far right parties. Like it would just be very, very, very bad. So I think when we see the getting people where they are is the Big Ten strategy. It's the we know we have to we have to create a space for you. Otherwise, you're going to be outside of it. And the Big Ten strategy has this very like grim and dark kind of approach to it, which is always that aphorism, which is like, we'd rather have people in the tent than outside of it peeing on it. You know, you'd rather have people in your tent because if they're outside of it, they could cut it open, they could tear it, they could, they have the, they kind of have a weird upper hand. Um, I think what's dangerous here is I think they, they are not going to, plan or embrace the idea of de-radicalization or deprogramming. So when you say that they're going to welcome them where they are, it means welcoming them as is. It means like basically saying, oh, you're a Q believer. Okay, welcome to the Republican Party. And I don't think, I mean, it's, this is fairly clear. I, I mean, wisdom consists of the anticipation of consequences. And I think that there is no anticipation of consequences in this movement at all. And I think it's fairly clear that embracing Q is not patriotic in any way. It's I'm just going to quote Mike Rothschild here, the author of the future book, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. His book comes out in October of 2021. And his response to this Hawaii GOP tweet was, was hang Mike Pence motivated by patriotism or sincere and deep love for America? Both maybe? And that's a really, really great question because that's the dichotomy that kind of takes place inside of these places is what does patriotism mean and what does it mean to be a patriot? And that's that embracing. I haven't, I saw that name, the word patriot appear so often, almost, uh, almost more rapidly after the Kavanaugh hearings, when people started identifying themselves as the real Americans, the ones that would defend the GOP, not America, not democracy, but defend the ideological constructs of the far right. Right. But now let's work to nail down the ideological constructs of the far right and what patriotism or true patriots really are. I was doing research earlier this week and looking into the transfer of folks from the Donald.win, which was the spinoff of Reddit's The Donald subreddit, into uh, Patriots.win, which is the new place where Trump-supporting, Q-adjacent, many Q followers post and 
One of the top pinned posts was Good Morning Patriots, a thread titled Good Morning Patriots. And the post reads, today is a big day. After five years, the Donald has rebranded at twopatriots.win. Don't worry, your accounts work exactly the same. And the top comments really stood out to me because here is the discussion about patriotism versus Trumpism versus GOP. And the top comment comes from a person who writes, yes, Trump started the movement and we will continue it. But there is indeed dissent within this discussion when a person follows up by asking or rather by saying, I'm okay with this change, but don't like it. Trump is our party. Trump is our brand. Trump is everything to this movement. I understand the issues involved with this, but want to share my feelings of dislike over the domain change. And others followed with hundreds of points, writing, I understand, but we have to evolve. Trump will always be our George Washington. And others even advocate for renaming states and bridges and Washington, D.C. after Trump. But are we saying that Trumpism is simply patriotism to these folks? Wow, that's a, that's a really great question. I I mean, in that, in the way you just explained that, yeah, I mean, that, I would say that's a fairly good argument to say it is. So several several people I interact with fairly closely and people that are conservative friends of mine, after the Covington kids media incident in January 2019, were sending me debunked articles that usually came from the blaze or usually came from further right, but not far right material. And we're constantly putting out this thing saying the Patriots uh, have proved it wrong. The Patriots have shown that CNN was in the wrong here. And regardless of the fact that CNN wasn't, didn't handle that properly at all, I think you're right. At that moment, I think that was just the way the, the dog whistle for Trumpism. I think they didn't have the word for Trumpism. And I think Trumpism is a word they don't want to use out loud because Trumpism is tied to a brand which is now tarnished. And I think to give them some dark, grim credit, it's kind of very almost like fortunate that they chose patriot, the patriot or patriotism as their thing rather than Trumpism because at post-insurrection, how much loss and of value the Trump brand will actually encounter. And patriotism, like Q, um, allows for other people to step in as a leadership role. It allows them to be the next patriot. And I think people like like Senator Cruz or Hawley or Cotton, I think, would want to be the leader of that type of movement. And this way, it doesn't have to be tied directly to Trump. Right. And if it's not tied directly to Trump, we look at someone like a Ted Cruz, a Josh Hawley or a Tom Cotton, and there exists the opportunity for people to let their guard down. Those who have already grown to associate QAnon with Trump. But that energy... Mm -hmm. Ju doesn't just go away. It evolves and takes different forms. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said it best a few months ago. When the election is over, we can't just go back to brunch. This is hard work. Already, a viral tweet earlier this week captured the essence of a narrative that's forming that much of QAnon will just disappear. The screen grab of the Reddit post says, I'm bored of this Q shit. New topic. Do you think there was a semi-advanced civilization before 12 or 13,000 years ago? Example, the pyramids are older than people think, sunken cities that used to be on the pre-flood coast of Earth, the eerie similarity of monolithic structures worldwide. And it's like, no, this is not what the majority of Q followers are thinking right now. Oh my gosh. It reminds me of that meme that's just like, oh, here we go again. This is, this, it's amazing. That's amazing that that's the 
confluence of belief, almost as if like Q was a vehicle that was a space holder or like a container that was meant to be temporary because the, again, the overarching conspiracy theory itself was really this, this idea, there's something beneath that. Okay. So the idea beneath all of this is the lack of agency. They don't believe they have a real say because no one has given them the tools of agency. No one has given them the tools or strategy of controlling their identity in an ever-changing world that is very chaotic, very confusing, and very progressive. It changes towards, as it says, it always bends towards justice. But that bend, we don't, it's not a very quick bend. It is a long, long arc of basically recognizing humans as empowered to do things that can control both their own personal lives and the earth around them. And once those work in harmony, that's basically when we reach the next stage of wherever we want to go. But within all of that, and inside the feelings of disenfranchisement and victimhood, is always this feeling of, I'm not in control of this. And therefore, they project that onto the people around them, is that if I'm not in control of this, neither really possibly is anyone else, because they can't, if they can't imagine agency for themselves, they project the lack of agency onto other people, which always manifests in a very, very, very classic meme which the classic meme is aliens. And they always assume that we humans were never really as capable to create these mega structures to do these things. And history itself or archaeology or uh, paleontology or any of the sciences in which we actually identify and correct the historical record are actually somewhat inaccurate because it means that humans could have built all these things, actually did construct them. So when you go and see people pivot to these other conspiracy theories that are in the background, they're not really pivoting away from the queue. They're just using the other models that were already there, which is I don't have agency and therefore likely no one has ever had agency. Maybe we should investigate. And that goes down to the the, the tool set of Q, the, the everlasting tool set that has always been inside of all of this thing, which is do your own research. And all that is, is a toolkit for radicalization. We talked to David Nyward about it. We talked to Reed Berkowitz about it. These, uh, these ideas of do your own research is, is part of the system that allows people to fall into these things. Once they've done that and they find a post like that, they go, oh, interesting. Maybe the world is older than we thought. Maybe this is it. But that lack of trust in authority, that lack of trust in science, lack of trust in, in actual evidence manifest in any way you want it to. Q might be a current container, but it leaves behind in its in its trace this very, very dangerous side effect. And the dangerous side effects is not just the lack of trust of, of authority, but the willingness to be the authority yourself. And that, again, manifests in dangerous activities like patriot movements, paramilitary groups, kidnapping children, Disman like actually causing major issues when it comes to actually tracking groups of, of child trafficking and doing their own research, which is actually getting in the way. All of these things are inherently and disastrously bad because they lack the trust in actual systems that make us understand an objective reality. Right. But now Q followers are left with scripture from the last three years to analyze. Mm -hmm. There's historical precedent at 60 AD that you think could prove to be problematic moving forward. No, it's not just 60 AD. It's, it's every time in history where a major shift in religion has taken place and not to, and this again, just to preface this, I'm not comparing QAnon to a religion. I'm just saying that some of the structures in which religion manifests as a worshiping status or a way that 
people become involved in a congregation or a group of people that martyr themselves for a belief that is not fitting into society, these repeat themselves over and over and over again. And so my analogy is always like, imagine how crazy it was after Peter or Paul were taken by the Romans in in about 60 AD, and all they had were the words. They had the gospel, which it's just uh, translated to the word truth. And the gospel, which is the, the writings, becomes the evidence of the event. And so in other words, years ago, when YouTube changed its algorithm, it started profiting from time spent. It started moving people into these rabbit holes and it started moving people into these spaces where anybody who was like a quote, authoritative figure. So somebody who was like, let's just say, for example, a health guru, they would get prioritized if you Googled like, well, how's my gut health? A, a random person from who knows where was making a, an exorbitant amount of videos about gut health. So YouTube is like, well, they must know what they're talking about because they've just made so much volume of this that it must be it. Well, obviously, that is a glitch in the system because sometimes those people are bad actors and they actually don't know what they're talking about and they just make shit up. So YouTube decided, well, we're going to have to make this more authoritative. So in order to make this more authoritative, they have to prioritize the news feed or the feed, the search results, with things that come off as more authoritative. In other words, actually, people who have history authors, uh, scientists, uh, people who have established themselves in publications, established themselves as sources and so on. But then there was a glitch in this. Amazon at that same time was allowing anyone, you, me, our friends, to write a book and go to the self-publishing site and get yourself an ISBN number. So you could go and actually create an on-demand book. So you could write a book, let's just say, uh, bullshit about bullshit. (laughs) And you write bullshit about bullshit and you go to the self-publishing site, you press, I'd like to self-publish, one human being purchases it and it becomes an actual book. Now you've written just fiction, but that fiction becomes an authoritative source. That authoritative source now represents you as an authoritative figure because now YouTube sees you as a published author and starts primarying your researchers results. In other words, if you invent evidence and use that evidence as gospel, You've detached yourself from any structural way of identifying how we've established and understood science and fact for the last 500 years. And so those types of things actually become structurally damaging to the entire future. The goal of science, the goal of peer review, the goal of any of these things that we've done from anthropology. Now, remember, many of these sciences are fairly new. The natural sciences are about 250 years old. But when we think about those things that we've believed, that it's in a belief that we've used to correct the historical record. We've acknowledged that the earth is not the center of the universe. We've figured out that there are galaxies outside of our galaxy that hold millions and trillions of stars. All of those things are science. But if you start negating that, once you start that, you start moving into these tribalistic subgroups that can only believe in the proof that's been available to them, which can be completely made up. And when you lose evidence and authority, we once again center agency or a lack thereof. Democracy is messy. Democracy is not easy. It's a participatory act. Democracy is a verb, not a noun. We're in charge of our own futures. I think what I think what you're alluding to here is that I think we've lost sense of how important democracy is and how much we don't how much how good we have it. Because I think when we stop thinking about things like democracy, we start thinking them as they just are structural. And I think when you fight for democracy, you have to participate in it. And when you don't participate in it, in other words, times of peace, 
at times in which it's just functioning, so to speak, what you're looking at is that two-party system. It's kind of like a pendulum. It goes one way, it goes the other. But after a while, it stagnates. So people stop remembering that that's what democracy is operating like. So when that starts becoming a questionable act, like what is democracy, then people start placing their own definitions onto it because they're not participating uh, directly in it. And I think that is the thing that I think is most important is that we have to remember that democracy is a completely participatory action. You have to work with it all the time, but it is bureaucratic. It is kind of messy, but it's a mad part of democracy is also that agency it gives you to not have to think about it when it is working. So you're supposed to pivot that to your own personal progress and everything. And the reason for that is actually quite simple. Because if you have agency over your own future, then you're not allowing somebody else to take that agency from you. As Shoshana Zuboff said in The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, she was saying that in order to imagine a future, you have to you literally have to imagine the outcome. When you don't, when you stop doing that, when you let somebody else imagine that future for you, not only does your agency decrease, but likely you fit inside some sort of commodified version of that future, something that is surveilled, something that is part of somebody else's future, and you're just a cog in that. And democracy is filled with a bunch of cogs. It's filled with a bunch of human beings that just operate as, as what we think is our voting output of just that's our civic engagement. But civic engagement is everything. It is the absolute participation in all of the different facets of civic life. And I think it's really, really easy to give that to somebody else and imagine somebody else doing it. And what happened, I think, over the last several years in Trumpism is Trump has had no desire whatsoever to understand the democracy. There's a foretold story about the fact that when he was told Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, he was genuinely shocked. And if you go back, well, Trump's tweets are gone now, but if you go back and we're looking at his, his tweets, you would see that all of a sudden, almost overnight, he was talking about Abraham Lincoln. And now he's the party of this, the party of Abraham Lincoln. And that was because he had just learned it. In other words, he was completely detached from what our civic histories are, but he wasn't the only one. What he did was he empowered others who were also detached from their civic histories to believe in his version of civic history. And that type of thing was a feedback loop that consistently became the idea and how we interpret reality. So he was replacing reality with, well, patriotism, Trumpism, his version of, of patriotism became the working model for the followers. And once they started doing that, they started thinking that they were the true patriots because they were simply adhering to somebody else's version of that. And that is that's repeatable again. That's all the time. That's every time we see people getting too used to something, they forget how important it is. And that's whether you want to call that the hedonic treadmill where we normalize everything from violence to gifts or the ability to just understand how uh, take everything for granted. Human beings are extremely adaptable to their situations. The activation and decision that we keep returning to, the, the insurrection and the decision to destroy democracy, they, in their minds, didn't believe they were taking apart democracy. They thought they were doing their patriotic work to make that so. And that's, to circle this back, is why many of these GOP accounts are embracing the insurrectionists and the QAnon people. And everyone who is outside of that is because if you can't fix their civic mind, you can 
at least tell them that you'll understand them better. If the GOP is welcoming Q followers into their big tent, and we spoke to Reid Berkowitz about how it's important to not make fun of Q followers, but isn't it a threat to take anti-democratic energy and to permanently integrate it into the GOP without the Gamergate-style harassment tactics and anti-democratic coup attempts being seriously addressed? Yeah, that's a great question. So you're right. Yes, there's two different parts to this. I think both uh, David Nywer and Reed Berkowitz, and I think most people who know about how deradicalization, deprogramming works, and how people get brought into scalable fictions. I think one of the things we have to understand is when their when their realities start to fissure, you have to extend empathy. You have to embrace them. You have to let them know that they're still humans and they still have control over their futures. They, you have to give them back their agency. I think what's missing in these GOP groups is there is no attempt whatsoever to do that first part. I think the attempt there is just simply open the door and bring them in the tent. I think that is as dangerous as identifying them as a fracturing of the party. I think bringing everyone under the same tent is anti-democratic or anti-democracy as is. Uh, when you do that without any establishing of empathy, understanding, compassion, you just simply say, yeah, you, what you did wasn't wrong, but what, what we're doing is, is, is fine in here. Embracing Q non-followers or embracing radicalized individuals has to require some sort of empathy to understand how they got there. Why do you feel this way? What has caused you to do this? What are your grievances? What what what's hurting underneath all of this? And that those types of questions are actually somewhat painful, and they're actually like re rehashing some sort of uh, likely hidden trauma. But in that way, at least you have a better. Uh, group of people. Uh, and I don't mean better as in like uh, better human beings. I mean, like as in a qualitative version of democracy, as in people who not only have an understanding of their own rights as citizens, but also a way that rights of citizens apply to the people around them. Do you think the GOP accounts see Q supporters as money? And where do you see the trends of commodification going from here? I think this is really <laughs> important. I think what you just said is uh, one of the most important things to think about that we didn't really breach yet, which is how much commodification and, and uh, capitalism is, is shifting and going to shift over the next several years, uh, not just because of a new presidency, but because of the way that we, they have to fundraise. The GOP is now on its back foot, so it's now in a reactive state. So I think there's a second reason of the big tent policy, which is that they know that they need the money to flow a certain way. They need to commodify in a certain direction. They also know that Q worked. <laughs> so they remember the insurrection, they didn't just show up. They had T-shirts. They had T-shirts that says Civil War January 6th. That means somebody's making merch in advance of the insurrection. That means there was already a model of purchasing product for the anti-democracy movement. And so the GOP is like, well, shit, that money could go to our party. So I think it's not just fundraising too. I think a lot of the grift industry that is underneath and around our commodified state is just this overwhelming sense of the normalization of commodification and, and values. And the GOP, the grand old party, runs a lot on nostalgia. Like they, they run on the make a great American again policy, which is that there was once a point in which that grand old party would identify itself as the party that is the nostalgia party. It's the one that believes in a past rather than a future and wants to bring it there. And I think it, we, just to, to, to bring up Graft and Tanner's work a little bit, it's to, to remind us that like we could see it. Keep in mind that when you're watching all this, it's not 
just something that intellectuals talk about or academics ponder. It is something that you could see with your own eyes in real time. And it's not just the merch of the far right and the grifters of YouTube, but it's also like our mainstream media. Uh, Grafton did a lot of work as well as I did on uh, Too Many Cooks in 2014, which again, on another episode, we could talk about just 2014 because 2014 was possibly one of the biggest, most cultural years in meme history and cultural history. And I think, as we always say, we'll talk about another one about how Gamergate is everything. That that year was just such an intense year for the way things shifted. Too Many Cooks was this visual output of the commodification of, of American media entertainment in its old sense, the traditional media structure, and transferring it or pivoting it into a digital space, into a mimetic, shareable, ridiculous, Dada-esque space that was both poking fun at nostalgia, but also re recognizing that nothing operates outside of it. And so it's always like this, we have to keep pummeling nostalgia on people so they keep buying into this false past because it's just an imagination of it. And our imagination of it comes from our cultural memory, which is usually television. So keep that in mind when you watch shows like WandaVision. I, I've just caught up with the, the series and I'm not going to give spoilers here, but each episode thus far, uh, and we're up to episode three here, is a different decade of television from the 50s, 60s, and 70s and the model of I Love Lucy and then up to the Brady Bunch style. They're the aesthetic from everything from the house sets to the color to everything. And it interests me because the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is the frame in which the show exists, is the ultimate transition of, me of commodification of media entertainment of the 2010s. When we entered the 2010s, we had TV and film. And film would act as this long-form entertainment that you would go to. And the MCU introduced us to episodic film. And so the 21 episodes, if you want to call it that, that made up the, the, the saga that went through phase three, has now migrated itself back onto television. And much like Game of Thrones, which is really just 10-hour movies, now we have these 10-hour movies broken into – these five-hour movies broken into 10 acts that play on old nostalgia. It's almost as if the – version of our past, the, the the memories of our past, wh whether that be from I Love Lucy or the Brady Bunch, is the only thing we have. It's almost like that's how shallow our memories are. So we can only envision structures like that. There's There wasn't versions of the show, WandaVision, that gave us any of the other TV that was on at the time. It wasn't anything that was around. And so when I'm watching WandaVision, parts of it actually remind me, especially the opening credits sequence, of Too Many Cooks, as if we're watching a mimic of a mimic of a mimic of a mimic or a meme of a meme of a meme that we have to keep replaying. So again, this is something that I think is important that we keep an eye out over the course of the next several years as to how beneath and above it all, the aesthetic value of all these things is really just money flows. And a lot of this is not just grift, but really just normalizing commodity fetishism. And that is playing out both in politics and media simultaneously. And if we do not teach people about this, if we do not approach it in a critical stance, if we do not create a media, liter media literacies that enable and engage with meme and internet literacies, then we just simply have people reading the present. And the present can't exist in a vacuum. And if it does, then you just can't say, hey, the people who subscribe to Q Fiction were largely motivated by a sincere and deep love for America. And you know what? 
that's really not true. <laughs> it's really not true. And when you subscribe <laughs> to a fiction in a metatextual analysis of WandaVision itself, and without getting too much into spoilers, we can look at the reality versus unreality model. Those peering in from what we believe to be a grounded sense of reality on the outside versus Wanda's choice, or at least we believe it's her choice, to live in an unreality to create her own fiction to embrace. Uh, in that way, the show is a mirror reflection of our alternate reality substrate we find ourselves in. And I think you're totally right. Yeah. Don't, and don't get me wrong, too. By the way, I, I just want to make sure everybody knows I, I thoroughly enjoy Too Many Cooks and I enjoy WandaVision. I am a, a big nerd fan of these content. But I do think if we don't approach them, approach them critically and look at them for what they really are and how they operate, I think we'll just start buying into that type of model and let other people tell us how our past existed rather than us remembering how the past actually existed, which is not fun, smooth, or anything. And I, I do like the way you said that, which is, again, no spoilers, but the construct of the reality is interesting too because we have the the show itself is metatextual. You have to understand so many references to other pieces of media to even understand it. And it's in a way brilliant. And it's kind of like, do your own research. So we have to be very, very careful about how we approach media and, and remind ourselves that we not only do we have agency, but we have agency to think critically. Thank you for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.